I'm Gray Almeida. Welcome to The Great Area. I'm in the studio today with Jennifer Levine and Jim Derrick, president and co-president of the Safe Coalition. Hi. How are you? Hello. I'm great. How are you? Thank you so much for coming into the studio to speak with me this morning. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. We're thrilled. (laughs) I had reached out to them to come in and speak with me about what can we parents do in order to try to protect our kids from becoming the victims of a substance abuse disorder. You, you asked such a great question, and I think it's wonderful that we're both here to talk about this. Jim and I both have focused a lot of our energy over the past five years with the development of the Safe Coalition, which is a local nonprofit organization that provides education, treatment options, and resources for those living and impacted by substance use disorder. And much of the work over the past I would say three and a half years has been focused on providing education to elementary, middle and high school level youth and really providing support and services to parents who are impacted or who want to learn more in a preventative capacity. One of the things that I've learned is that this conversation that has completely changed over the very short period of time, just say no. We focused on the drug. Just say no to the drug. That's what we're teaching our kids. That's how to have the conversation. There really wasn't a conversation. Today, what we're learning is that it's not the drug, it's the social emotional health of of kids early, early on. Jennifer does a wonderful job teaching families how to speak age appropriately to kids as they develop, focusing once again on their social emotional well-being so that they're not looking for something outside of themselves, a drug, anything else that you become addicted to, unhealthy behaviors to make their insides feel better. And that's really what we're focused on. And Candidly, that's where the schools are focusing now uh, as we all develop this understanding together. How do we have these conversations with our children? How real, how honest, what language do we use? What do we pay attention to? Can you you help me on that one a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And you're asking the million-dollar questions because people come together and they grow families because they want to have a family. They love children. They want that close togetherness. And there's no toolkit on how to do that, especially when it comes to social emotional wellness. And so as we have been working in the communities and talking with families, we've picked up some really important key aspects on how to talk with your child about social emotional wellness and regulation and how to model that. So if we're looking at children who are zero to six, parents or caregivers Consistent adults in their lives are the people that they look up to. They learn everything. They learn how to talk, how to walk, what's important, what's not important, what's funny, what's scary. All of those things are role modeled by the adults in their lives. And so just like we teach our children to read and write and recognize what a letter is and how to say that out loud, how to put letters together to make a word, maybe a sight word, and then how to bring those letters together to create a structured sentence, we want to do the same things with emotions. If a child is getting emotional or upset about something that's going on, we want to build upon that as time goes on. And we want to be able to help our children regulate how they manage those emotions. As we all get older, things get harder and more complicated and more scary. And if we don't build the emotional skill set from the get-go, we can't manage those. And so often, we work with people in the community who say, you know what, I was never good at feeling lonely alone. I was never good at feeling sad by myself. And so as soon as I started smoking marijuana, as soon as I started drinking, 
And as soon as I saw my parents doing those things to quell those emotions that I know that they had, I felt a lot better or I felt nothing. And that was sometimes better than feeling awful. And in looking at this, this from a role model perspective, sometimes we have to give children the opportunity to see us in a harder, a harder light. So we all go to work and we all have really great days and we all have really bad days. And so what would it be like for us to say, you know, I had a really hard day today and I think I want to go to on a walk to make myself feel better. You're already teaching your children that you can do something active to quell a challenging day. You're allowing them to see you be vulnerable. You're allowing them to see an adult say that they didn't have a great day and that that's okay and that you're doing something healthy to manage that. If we can role model behaviors like that, that's crucial. And then those children will recognize that there's an option beyond substance use that you can use to make yourself feel well. I have a question about that. I've had a couple of friends who've gone through difficult moments as parents going through a divorce or maybe losing their parent, the grandparent, where it's they're going through a challenging time. And having discussions with my friends, it's it's such a difficult time for our family. I want to make sure that I set everything up perfectly for the children mm-hmm. so that they don't feel the sadness that I have. So that they, for them, they still have that magic as a child. So they don't want to open up and be that honest of showing mommy's or daddy is struggling with something and we're going to handle it and it's okay. You know, a five-year-old is not a mini adult. A five-year-old is a child. And so how do you meet a five-year-old and share that's, that someone has passed you share that the person that they love and they used to see, they can't see anymore because they're in a, a different place. However, you and your spirituality want to honor this this change and shift in life. But it is a change and shift in life. And it does happen. And if we don't allow children to see us vulnerable, and if we don't allow children to learn that life and loss happen, then as they get older and as life and loss happens, they are going to look for something else to quell those emotions because they don't know how to manage them. And life is unmanageable at times regardless of the things that you are that you experience when you are younger. But why not give our children all of the opportunity and all of the tools so that when these really challenging moments happen they're able to manage through them. We always talk about setting our children up for success. We we get the good job, so we have the great health insurance, so we can buy the nice home with the great yard, with the yards, with the, the fence around the yard to keep them safe and protected, with the, the best health insurance to send them to the best doctors, and we send them to the best schools, and we get them engaged in the best sports programs and, and out-of-school activities so they can go to college. And all of these things are the layers on someone, but they're not the person. And so if the whole of the person, if the inside of the person is broken, then all these other layers at some point are going to break away. And, and so what are we doing? We love, we love our children and we love our families and we have to be honest and real about how the world is going to, to move through them. And that means that we have to meet and be honest with our children around what's really going on. And we have to be the role models for how we hope they can manage those emotions. You know, the Safe Coalition was started five years ago. And before the coalition started, there was a small support group that we ran at the the Franklin YMCA. And there was a mobile program where I would most literally go into families' homes and wives would tell their husbands that they were having a Tupperware party. 
And I would come in and we would talk about substance use and they couldn't tell their partners that they were having people over to talk about this because no one wanted to talk about it. And I'd get to the parties and the ladies in the neighborhood would be there and everyone would bring bring a bottle of wine. And I would talk about how we're having a whole conversation about their kids using and what are they role modeling if they're bringing wine on a Tuesday night to this Tupperware party that they're hiding from their spouses. And Now, why couldn't they share it with their spouse? Because their spouses were saying... There's no issue. I smoked weed. You smoked Nothing weed. They're okay. Oh, it was, it was to here. talk about their it was an the issue with their... Piece. Okay. Right. So we would have these support groups um, or we'd have some small community conversations and a mother would reach out and say, hey, you know, my kid's drinking every night. They're coming home from college and they're drinking on the weekends and I'm really concerned about it. And I know some other people in our neighborhood are concerned about it too. Would you be willing to chat with us? Yes, absolutely. I'll come over. Okay, well, you know, my husband thinks that it's fine. It's not a big deal. You know, he was an athlete. He's going to college. Nothing to see here. And so they would highlight this to get the husbands out or to not make it a highlighted big event because of stigma, um, which I understand. I, I a thousand percent understand all of these layers, especially five years ago, yeah. um, and that it would be labeled as a Tupperware party. And then I would come in and talk about what addiction really looks like and what it is. And now it is only five years later, but it's five years later and we have so much more information from our local community and we've grown as people in the community that are providing resources around what substance use looks like. We, five years ago, were not hyper-focused on marijuana. Vaping hadn't really hit the market yet. And so we, as an organization, have grown and our skill set has grown um, and our ability to share information has grown. But I will never forget those days where the stigma of addiction was so prevalent that we had to hide behind Tupperware parties And we also had to expose this ugly truth of wine does not need to be the accessory to motherhood or to parenthood. But there's three there's three predictive roles to substance use disorder being developed in a kid. Three predictive factors. One is experiencing trauma. Okay, trauma as defined by whatever that person feels is traumatic. Okay, two is genetics. Do you have one or more people in your family line that has substance use disorder? And three is exposure, exposure at a young age to intoxicants, to mind-altering substances. What Jen was describing before was healthy communication strategies to help avoid a traumatic experience for a youngster. I'll give you an example, a real-life example. Not being told that a relative is sick because you don't want to bother a young child. You don't want to upset them. So you don't tell them what cancer is. You don't tell them that grandpa's dying. You just say to them, you know, you need to get close with grandpa, you know, and you're trying to usher them through this, what is going to be a dying experience with their loved one. You sugarcoat, you sugarcoat, you sugarcoat. At some point, grandpa dies. Maybe it's sudden. And the child says, what happened? I don't understand this. It's not making sense to me. How does someone just die like that? You told me everything was okay. You just were encouraging me to be closer to grandpa. I don't get it. There's so many mixed messaging. Now I'm watching people grieve. I'm not prepared for this. I don't care whether you're 5, 10, 12. It doesn't matter. And then there's the anxiety afterwards of they weren't honest with me. I wonder what else they're not being honest about. Well-intentioned people who love you more than they can even describe 
are trying to shelter you from the pain that life has to offer. And in doing so, they create a traumatic experience which builds on itself because then you start to question what is real around me. If we don't share with our children as they develop what it means to live and to lose and how to trust, then they can't do that on their own. You know, I think that we have this false idea that once children go to college, they are ready to be adults. And they may they might need some support here and there, but that they can hold real meaningful relationships and that they can exist for a long time. And that they can manage internships and they, they can manage a new wave of responsibility. But if we haven't taught them that in elementary, middle, and high school, then there's no way that they can do that. You know, we meet so many people who, in college, they leave home, they do really well academically, they do all the internships, they get a great job, but the biggest part of their life is still missing, which is the ability to hold and sustain meaningful relationships. And that is solely because... They weren't taught how to do that when they were younger because the focus was never to maintain connection and community and support. It was to get to that next step of life, which was to graduate middle school, to graduate high school, to graduate college, to get the internship, to get the great job with the great benefits, with the most vacation. And so where are our priorities lying? The amazing thing for me, Gray, is I'm sitting here like you, listening to Jen, and I'm having probably the same revelations you're having. It's a, wow, this whole picture... It's, it's the whole picture. It's not one part. It's not the substance use or abuse. It's not just the traumatic experience, but it's the whole holistic approach of building a healthy social-emotional basis for your children to grow into that is going to predict whether or not they are going to develop substance use disorder, almost a one-to-one correlation. I'm in support groups with parents that are dealing with active substance use disorder in their 20 to 30-year-old. I'm watching and I'm listening to the stories. And you, I promise you, you come to one of those group meetings, you will immediately see the nexus between what Jen's talking about. Listening to these stories, listening to both of you, it's talking about seeing the whole picture. There is something that seems pretty obvious to me, though, as well as talking about how five years ago the discussion was completely different. Let's not forget that the people raising the children today were not raised necessarily in an environment where they were taught how to deal with these issues properly. So here we are raising children. We have to be open. We have to communicate with them. But do we know how to do that? I am thankful that I have met both of you and that I've gotten involved with the Safe Coalition. Um, What are are the type of, of, of... gatherings that you have every single month. Can you can we quickly go over that? Yeah, sure. So the first Tuesday of every month, we have a community forum. And typically at that community forum, we meet with other leaders in the community to hear about what they're doing in regards to substance use or what they're seeing in regards to substance use. And we typically will bring our information that we have around how to communicate with your child, other support groups that we run, ways to communicate or get in touch with us. One thing that the coalition has done recently is we have opened up a space in Norfolk and we have four offices. And the focus of that location is so that we can have 
open office hours for families and parents or caretakers or whoever to come in and talk with us around what they would like to learn about. And so we can talk with them. Jim and I can talk with someone around this social emotional wellness piece. We could bring in a police officer who has a very incredibly developed skill set around social emotional wellness, mindfulness, and working with with middle school aged youth. We have a grief counselor who has a heavy focus on adolescence and how to manage grief. And grief is something that we have developed a new style of understanding around. When the coalition started, we focused this understanding of grief around if there was an overdose and the person died in the house. Now we're saying, no, no, grief can be if you have a parent and they have now realized that they need to go to detox, that person is gone for four days. We recognize that if someone has a sibling and that sibling is now going to a rehab and that's a month long, there's a loss. We can bring a counselor in there. We have realized that if Johnny has hockey practice every Tuesday night, but dad's now going to an AA meeting every Tuesday night, that's a loss. And so how do we understand grief? How do we talk about grief? How do we understand loss? How do we talk about loss? But really, any way that we can support an individual or a family, we will go above and beyond to do that, whether that means that they come to our community forum or they stop by our office or they call our support line or they send us an email could they have a Tupperware party? They can have Absolutely. a Tupperware party, yeah. <laughs> so to get back to the young children, kindergarten, sixth grade kind of age group and the language, the importance of the language that we choose when we start trying to teach our children about substance abuse disorder and the people who are suffering from that. What, what do they mean by saying use the proper language? So I think that's a great question. So if we're looking at elementary school aged youth, We want to highlight words that can connect with emotion. So I see that you're crying. Are you you sad? And then let the child explain what they're feeling and talk about that feeling. Look, you're laughing. You must love this movie. You must be happy. And allow them to explain that feeling. And as time goes on, use other language and emotional words. So you're happy, you're sad, you can be lonely, you can be anxious, you can be frustrated, you can be confused, you could be hurt. Explore as an as the parent other words that around language. And then if, as we move into that middle school era, it's okay to ask your child, so what are you feeling? What are you feeling? Instead of, I don't understand why you're angry about this. This isn't something that you should be angry about. What are you feeling? Always focusing on open-ended questions and allowing your child the space to answer and exploring the answer together. It is never your agenda when you're talking about someone else's emotions. You have to honor that. We are so quick to fix. We are so quick to label. We are so quick to move on to the next. And our children are never able to manage their own feelings, thoughts, and emotions or be able to do that later on in a relationship with someone else if we're not teaching them those skills now. And it's so hard. It's so hard. We're all moving a million miles a minute. And we have to slow down for the health and wellness of our children. We have to. We have to. If we don't slow down, then what are we doing? What are we doing? We're not teaching the skills that we want to be able to teach. Who cares if your child knows two plus two? If they can't say Oh, that they're sad, and if they don't know the next step on how to heal that portion of them right then, then we're only doing half of our job. 
Do you have any recommendations for parents who might be full-time in, in a job who don't necessarily have enough hours in the day in order to be able to speak with their children? You know, I, I can't tell anyone how to parent, and, and I'm not a parent that has many children. But I guess my hope for myself is that as I raise my son, I hope that I can detach from the work when I'm home. And I have had to learn that lesson over and over and over again. How do you detach? We live in a world where our jobs sometimes take hold of us much later after we leave the office. And so how do we hold ourselves accountable to our families like we're holding ourselves accountable for for our job? And so maybe that means that there's certain nights that one parent disconnects from from their job earlier than someone else can. I think that that's a family conversation, but I know that for me, I hope that I continue to work on my ability to disconnect from my job so that I can be there for my family. And that's something that I struggle with, but something that I have to take responsibility for. It's easy to sit here and talk about what all these families should and shouldn't do. And at the end of the day, I'm a mom and I'm a wife and I have to honor those two roles and I have to work really hard to make sure that I disconnect because I know myself and I know that I probably could keep on working, um, but I don't want to be that person. Probably also in the car, driving to and from sports. That's always a good... you you got a captive audience there. I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> so uh, the Franklin Public Schools have, have a task force. And one of the committees chaired by our school committee chair here in Franklin, Ann Bergen, uh, put together a book called The Ride Home. And it is based on a concept that uh, Tom Angelo, the uh, athletic director here in Franklin, uh, had, which was that the ride home from sporting events, in his case with his boys, was always his most important sacred space where he would engage in exactly the conversations Jen's talking about. Not did you win or lose, but conversations about life and what the kids wanted to talk about. Cell phones were banned in the car. He would shut them all off, and they would cherish this time in their way home. And so The Ride Home is a book that runs through exactly how to have these types of conversations with the language Jen's talking about. It talks about social media. It talks about uh, and, and healthy use of social media. It talks about substances. It talks about all sorts of ways to engage the kids in conversation around not substance use disorder so much, but having these healthy, holistic conversations. And the great thing about it is, as I sat there listening to your really smart question, which is, in today's world, how do we prioritize this and find the time? Here's a guy who used the ride home in the car from sporting events as his sacred space. And so I think that's one of the answers, is to is to find the time, make it a priority, and then honor that time, and the kids get the signal that this is sacred. We don't you know, whether you put your cell phones in the basket before dinner, whatever the ritual is, that it is our time together. So to get back now to the language, I want to specifically, though, head on to the proper language when we're referring to people dealing with addiction. And you had mentioned clean, dirty, like those type mm. of different words. Can can you go over that? Sure. It's so interesting. So over the past five years, the coalition has been in our community and we are working and meeting with families who have been marginalized, who have been living in the shadows because of stigma. The understanding of addiction through the lens of stigma has created a style of language that either accepts or pushes people away based on language such as clean and dirty. When we 
think about something that's clean. We think that it's acceptable. We think that it's honest. We believe that we can trust it. And when we think of something that is dirty, we think of something that we don't want to be around, that we don't trust, that we we can't see through, that isn't transparent. And so when we start a conversation around someone who's living with a brain disease and the brain disease of addiction, highlighting that they may be clean or dirty is already putting a layer that they're not being accepted into this community. And even when we're talking about someone who's living with the disease of addiction, and even if we are highlighting that they're clean, we're already saying that they were dirty at one point. Can you imagine any other illness adopting clean or dirty? So my son or daughter, God forbid, diagnosed with leukemia. And while they have active cancer cells in their body, we call them dirty. Can you imagine that? The fact of the matter is it's extremely damaging. And when you start realizing, or rather when you come to the understanding, as the National Institute of Health has, that substance use disorder is a mental illness, okay? It's not a choice. It's not a habit. You're not a junkie. It's a mental illness. Then you realize and you start to draw the parallels between other diseases and adopt the same language with other diseases, the old language, you realize how awfully insulting and stigmatizing it is. What are the signs that young children tend to, to show that c- communicate to us parents that they're more susceptible? You know, we all have different personalities. There's the more outgoing kid, the more reserved kid. Have you noticed anything around that that maybe parents should be more careful? So oh. I definitely think that genetics are crucial and that if you have a history of substance use or mental health concerns in your family, diagnosed or not, that that is a conversation you are going to want to have with your child and your spouse openly, that addiction runs in the family, that addiction can start young. If you are bringing your child to the doctors or to get their wisdom teeth out, that you're having conversations with your child and the doctor all together around medication options, you want to be an advocate for your child and you want your child to see what an advocate looks like and the type of questions and conversations you're having. In regards to behavior, if you're recognizing that your child is incredibly emotional or sensitive about things for a prolonged period of time, then that's something that you're probably going to want to talk to your pediatrician about just in general um, because there could be more concerns going on. But I think going to what Jim had said earlier, that if there was trauma in the household, if there are genetics, and if there is exposure to any kind of substances frequently in the household, that those are precursors for increased substance use later on. So maybe limiting the amount of alcohol that's utilized in the home, maybe recognizing if there is cigarette, vaping, marijuana use in the home, having open conversations around feelings and emotions, if there are prolonged periods of emotional frustration, sadness, anger, talking with a pediatrician about why that may be happening, that's crucial. But I think the genetics piece cannot ever be overlooked. That's something that we really haven't been talking a lot about is genetics. And even if even if it's not diagnosed as a mental illness or we know that someone has had a substance use concern in the past, talking about that is crucial. I think we covered like some questions for, for the age group, right? Kindergarten, sixth grade. I mean, I know I feel good about that. Can we move on to middle school now? Sure. Okay. So now this is kind of a a new phase in somebody's life. They're going to meet a lot of new kids. They're going to more easily have access to some of these substances. 
Um, so how does the discussion change with our children? It, this is such a great question. The discussion changes because we want to be able to build on that, those foundational pieces that we had created when they were in elementary school. What's different about middle school is that adolescents in the middle school age range are having many hormonal changes. And so what we don't want to teach parents is how to hyper-focus on shifts that they're seeing in their child and relate that automatically to substance use because some of those behavioral shifts are going to come anyway. There's going to be an irritability. There's going to be confusion. There's going to be emotional up and downs. And so how do you figure out what's going on with your child emotionally but also not directly relate that to substance use? So when we talked prior, we were talking about labeling emotions and giving language to different emotions to teach your child that there are more language words than happy and sad. And so now at this middle school level, we want to sit down with that same, holding that same expectation that there is no cell phone. You're looking your child in the eye. You're calm. Your body language is open. You're talking to them in a calm voice. Typically, when you are talking with someone with a calm voice, even if they're they're elevated, they'll come down and meet you. And so if you can automatically start the conversation with, hi, tell me what's going on, open-ended questions. Okay, so as you're listening to whatever's going on in their life, you can say, so it sounds like you're pretty frustrated. Or would you say you're frustrated? Would you say you're angry? Would you say you're disappointed? And your adolescent is going to be the first one to tell you if you are wrong, because that is the age that they're at. They're going to highlight whether you got that emotion right or wrong. And that is what you want. You want to be able to say one thing and have them say yes or no, and then then have them advocate for what is really going on. And that's how you start the conversation and the dialogue. And you're opening this up and you're opening this up and you're opening this up because If you say, you know, it looks like you're angry and you're frustrated, but just get over it. This is what happens. This is what happens with groups of friends. I told you that you shouldn't have gone out with Sally and Beth and Mary and that they weren't going to be nice to you later on. Or, you know, I told you that you should have put your cell phone away. And if you had put it away, then you wouldn't have gotten the text message and you wouldn't be so upset. I I see myself with my third grader. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Okay. And but this is, you know, we're all just trying to do our best. No, I know. I know. know, Then you don't know. And that is okay. And In five years, we could be having a different conversation because we've learned more things as time has gone on. But your middle schooler is going to be the first one to tell you whether you're right or wrong. So encourage that conversation instead of push it away. Okay. Can we talk about how do we handle the idea of my kid is hanging around the wrong crowd? Another great question. So what does the wrong crowd mean? Does that wrong crowd mean that that group of kids? That's a great question. Question. They're just not college bound. Right. Maybe it's that they're all hanging around smoking uh, weed after. And and do do the parents even know? It's not like we're there at school with you know. Is it just that we don't like the way that kid has purple hair? Right. So if uh, you know a few minutes ago we had talked about the style of language, clean and dirty for adults, and so now we're shifting the language to the right or wrong crowd for adolescents, and. What does it mean to be in the right or the wrong crowd? And what kid ever wants to be left out? And does that mean that they're in the wrong crowd? You know, something happened happened last month in our community forum meeting. And um, 
I haven't I haven't stopped thinking about it, actually. So we had a father come who has two children in a local high school, and both of his children are wonderful students. They are varsity athletes, and he's in recovery, and he's he goes to AA every single day, and he shared that he's concerned because his children's teammates and their families are drinking a lot and they're they're going over to one person's house the parents are buying the alcohol the parents are taking the keys and they think that that's okay and he highlighted how concerning that was and how these are the kids in the right crowd in quotes about 40 minutes later a local police officer came in um he he was late to the meeting he was on another call and i said you know what is your experience recently with kids using alcohol and he did not know the conversation prior because he wasn't there and he said well really it's just the kids and you know it's those kids it's the kids in the wrong crowd that are that are drinking a lot and that we're seeing and in that moment all of these worlds kind of crashed in my mind as i'm trying to hold this meeting together Because what I recognized is that we are labeling children as the good and the bad and that even the good are participating in the same activities as the bad. They just don't have that family network that's allowing them to stay away from the police. Hidden. I I just love what Jen just said. Yeah. I had that experience of being the dad saying the wrong crowd. I can pick them out. Whatever it was, the music they're listening to. um, And I labeled them. The fact of the matter is around the locker rooms, what I found out is exactly what Jen said and that uh, athletes, guess what? They are not immune to this. So if you're if you're looking to protect your child by insulating them from, quote, the wrong crowd or the wrong friends, you need to take your focus off other people. This is my opinion and focus on your student or your loved one. One of the things that I recognized early on is that people that are developing substance use disorder developing that tendency will change their goals to meet their behavior. So for me, a warning sign can be when your child says, you know what, I know I really wanted to go to Harvard, or I know I really enjoyed the chemistry club or the debate team or playing baseball. It's just not important to me anymore. What's important to me now is this, and it's a different goal that more matches their behavior. To me, that shifting around, I'll be interested to see what Jen says about this, is a warning sign. Healthy people change their behavior to reach for their goals. That's, to me, where I would have put my focus knowing now what I know now if I'd known it then. I am so happy that we're doing this together. So I I do want to support Jim and everything that he just said and bringing this back to the adolescent brain. So an adolescent brain is still, their frontal lobe is still in development until they're 25. And so when a child is developing and growing, especially that middle school, high school age, they are not able to look at the long-term goals. They are in it for the short-term wins. So what does it mean to be accepted? What does it mean to feel good right now? Because they can't see long term yet. They can't see they can't see the big picture. And so parents are here to guide and support their child. And their child is here to to make great decisions and stumble a little bit. So very similar to what Jim just said, the child's brain is still developing. And if their behavior has shifted and they enjoy the feeling of that behavior, then they are going to want to match that feeling more often with short-term goals. So maybe the big picture goal was to go to Harvard or to play varsity baseball. But right now, I want to get to the weekend and feel better. And the, the group over here maybe the track kids or whoever it is, the other debate team, 
they have activities that make me feel good, which could be substance use, and I'm going to go and spend more time with them. So originally we talked about students changing their behavior and changing their groups of friends that they spend time with. The good or the bad groups of friends, it doesn't really matter. If there's a, a shift in the people that they're spending time with, that is that is certainly something that, that you want to look out for. Okay. Um, can we can we talk about the, would you say middle school is when hidden in plain sight, that program, or would it mostly be high school? So the program itself, when it was developed six years ago, was focused on high school-aged youth and bringing their parents. In fact, no one under the age of 18 is actually supposed to be able to tour this program. Hidden in plain sight is a mock bedroom display where we set up items in the bedroom and parents will walk through once, highlight what they recognize can be related to substance use, walk through again and show them maybe what they missed and how things are used. And then we sit down with them. And this is one of the areas that the Safe Coalition has developed to talk with them about how to have a conversation with their child that does not break the bonds of their relationship. Again, this was focused on high school aged youth. Through the peer to peer group, I am meeting with high school aged youth every single Wednesday, and they are all very focused on their siblings or their experiences in middle school and saying, certainly, we were all vaping in middle school. We had access to vapes in middle school. Middle school parents need to see hidden in plain sight. Absolutely. And so this is something, though, that we have to shift our understanding around. And we have to create a different model because if we're if we're talking about 11 to 13, 14 year olds, that is a little bit different. The language that we would use and how you have a conversation with your child is different than the pamphlet that we would give to the high school parents. But this is something that we have to do. This is Jim had said earlier that this is the community's coalition and he's spot on. We want to hear from the community what their needs are and build that. And if we're hearing from the community that they would like to see a hidden in plain sight display for middle school aged youth, then that is what we have to create. Let's move on to high school. How do we talk with the high school-aged kids? Uh, we're direct. You know, we if we've done all that we can, we've laid the emotional foundation work for a child while they're in elementary school. We've gone back and forth to explore how emotions are felt and and how they're explored at a middle school level. And then when someone gets to high school, we have to be able to work with our children so that they can become the best advocates for themselves. And that is something that I wish that I had learned when I was much younger. We really want to create a movement of empowerment. So how does a student who is almost 18 able to talk with their doctor around the sensitive topics that they're going to have to sooner rather than later? How does a high school aged youth ask for help? So one thing that the high school peer-to-peer group has done this past year is really review substance use and substance use withdrawal. So in school, students are able to learn that using substances is bad. But what happens when you're forced to stop using a substance and you're withdrawing? How do you manage a withdrawal? How do you ask for help? Who do you go to for help? If you go to someone for help, are they going to tell your parents? Who is your adjustment counselor? What is a guidance counselor? What are they guiding you on? I mean, we need to empower children to be the best advocates for themselves because sooner rather than later, they're going to be adults and they need to know how to ask the right questions for their own health. Okay. Can we speak about sports injuries now that we're in high school? Of, of a high school athlete who has to go into surgery and gets 
some sort of pain medication and someone gets addicted to it. Sports injuries um, in Norfolk County are the most common way that an adolescent begins their substance use addiction. And sports injuries historically have been hyper-focused on giving a child narcotics for a short amount of time so that they feel the least amount of pain and they recover in the quickest amount of time possible. So... It's wonderful that we want to mitigate pain, and at the same time, we don't want to increase the opportunity for substance use disorder. So there have been a few bits of legislation that have been passed through the state of Massachusetts to decrease medication that is prescribed. However, most doctors do not honor the system. A lot of pharmacies don't put this, don't don't put the amount of medications into the system appropriately. And paper scripts are still allowed in our state. So while there has been an expectation from the state level that there's only seven days worth of medications, students, athletes are still getting a 30-day amount. Um, What needs to be discussed as well is the opportunity for parents to talk with doctors about alternatives to narcotics. So what else can your child be prescribed prior to the, um, the surgery. I think it's, it would be great if a parent asked, when can they have the follow-up appointment? Can we limit the medications that they're given? Can we alter the style of medication so instead of a narcotic, it's just a, a general pain medication? And what side effects should I look for in my child that would highlight early onset of addiction? And also talking about it with your high school student beforehand to empower your yes. child to speak with their provider as well. And to know what's going on within their own bodies. If we've done all this wonderful foundational work around social emotional wellness, that your that your child knows what it feels like to be sad and how to manage those feelings, we also want to empower them to recognize when their body feels different taking a medication. So, Johnny, you're going in for the surgery. This is the medication that the doctor is prescribing to you. Can you talk with the doctor around what you'll be experiencing when you take this medication, how long you should be taking it, how frequently you should be taking it. You as the parent might already have all those answers, but you also want to empower your child to talk to a physician around what's going to be placed in their system. And that's okay. You want your child to have an opportunity to feel a change and a shift within their system and know what's normal and what isn't about that. We have spoken with so many kids who either start narcotics with a because of a sports injury or a surgery to get their wisdom teeth out and they thought that it was normal to be craving the medication after it was done because they weren't educated and so it's wonderful to educate the parents but it's just as important to educate the student as we end this conversation is there anything else that you'd like to add i just want to reiterate that no matter where you find yourself on the continuum of what we talked about whether you feel like you've got young children at home and you're just starting these conversations, or if, like me, you're older and you've got an 18-year-old at home and you're wondering, have I been doing a good job? Or maybe you have somebody in your family that's experiencing substance use disorder. Just know that you can come to the coalition and you're not alone. All of us have our various lived experiences at the table, like you. We've made mistakes. And importantly, we have the resources to help reframe the way that you're speaking with your children. Thank you so much, Jen and Jim, for everything that you do in our community. Thank you, Thank you so much. 